Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic here with Aaron Cameron. We are on day two of our conference marathon here in Edmonton. We are lucky enough to have seated with us the, I guess the chair is the title of the Edmonton Real Estate Forum. It is Melanie Deholke, who's the CFO of Camgill Development Corporation. She's taken time out of her, I'm sure, very busy day hosting uh, this event to join us. So welcome, Melanie. Thank you guys very much. Yeah, it's great to be here. I guess we're closing in on the halfway point. So you've already delivered the opening remarks, the kickoff, the set the tone for the day. What's been your big takeaway as the chair so far for this conference? I think it's just the potential of Alberta and the fact that we don't advertise it enough. We don't tell our story enough. Malcolm was saying, you know, we're young, educated and growing. And that's been the case for a long time. We've got incredible education facilities here. As we've heard this morning, we're ranked third in the world in terms of education around AI and technology. And those just aren't things that we are promoting out of Edmonton. You don't say Alberta and then think, yeah, they're the AI leaders of the world. Like that's just not. It's all oil and gas. We are much more than oil and gas. And I think also just going off of a lot of the technology and the experience and expertise that Alberta has grown out of extracting oil products, those are now being used and influenced in innovation to in other forms of innovation and technology, such as clean energy and agribusiness. Humans are simple creatures and just the pairing of Alberta and oil is something easy to remember. And you kind of watch the rise and fall over the last decades of the roller coaster it's been. Uh, But that message I've taken away for sure over the last day and a half is The economy has diversified. That's not just pumping up the local market. There's actual data to uh, support it. So then on the flip side of that, I guess oil is very strong right now. Would it then have less of a positive impact on Alberta because it would be less of the overall productivity of the province? If uh, (laughs) you get where I'm going with that? Well, I think I do. Whenever commodities are doing well, Alberta is doing well. So that helps to boost our economy. And it just means that we can take advantage of that and help to put those dollars into more innovation and investing into newer technologies and what have you. So, Yeah, I'll answer Adam's question that I don't think it has less of an impact. I think it's just, it's added on top of the other diversified component to the economy. It's, it's still there in its, That's the in its glory, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think that I've said a couple of times that Alberta doing really well right now is on the backs of some really unfortunate situations like the war in the Ukraine and then also because of COVID. So we should really take advantage of that and remember that it's a gift. Yeah, a hard-earned gift, yeah. We're talking about hosting. We're going to get into Melanie's background and how she ended up being the CFO of Camgill and what Camgill is and what your business values and strategies are. But last question on hosting the forum. You don't just stand up there and do the opening remarks. Like there's a lot of work behind the scenes. Maybe just talk to what you've been going through over the last four or five months to get to this day. I think more stress than anything else. Like I think that when you accept the position, you say yes and you figure it out, you know, as you go along because the opportunity's there. For me, it was um, about being a female and being able to stand up in front of a group of people and have other females see that we're doing this now. For me, that was a big part of it. 
you know, I don't think of myself as being the best candidate for doing these types of things, but the opportunity came to me. So I said, yes, and I've been trying to figure it out. So I went to some of my predecessors that have done this before and said, you know, what do you do and what do you suggest? And the biggest thing that they said is get informed. So go out and talk to people and just make sure that you're ready and you know what's going on in the marketplace right now. So that's exactly what I did. Inform is great at backing you up and giving you a pretty good template as to what you need to be doing and what you need to be saying. But I think there's also an aspect of you need to make it your own as well. So on top of an already busy, stressful day, they asked you to join us in the podcast on top of... Uh, <laughs> Another thing that's very new. Yeah, you got to learn to say no. Say yes yeah. and figure it out later. Yeah. So we kind of deviated from our usual format because we wanted to talk about the hosting uh, responsibilities. But let's get back on our normal track. Your background, how you got here, when did the passion for real estate start? What's the background story here? <laughs> yeah, I think like a lot of people, I just kind of fell into it. So... I followed a guy actually to Edmonton and then... Uh, from was, where? <laughs> I was in Calgary. Okay. Yeah. And so I ended up back in Edmonton and was looking for a job. I was following an accounting designation at that point in time in my education and ended up falling into property management actually. And then realized that there just wasn't enough challenge in the property management side of it. So ended up speaking with one of the investors and forming a great relationship with him. And I think it was one that was just based off of curiosity. And you were curious. He was willing to give information and opportunity and eventually started working for that individual. And it's a family-based entrepreneurial situation. So I think just a lot of opportunity to try new things. Ended up falling in love with the finance side of things and real estate just in general because it's always changing and it's always different. And it's a puzzle that you're always trying to piece together. So that's the fun in real estate. Problem solving. Yeah, we were talking about that in a previous podcast. Some days maybe it doesn't feel like a blessing, but it is a big part of the job, right? Huge part of the job. <laughs> the bricks and mortar, you can see it, you can touch it, you can feel it. And no two properties are the same, which is also the fun part of it, right? Like it's never the same. Yeah, it's pretty cool to be able to pack all of my kids up into a car and drive around and say, we built that, we built that. And this is how real estate operates. So at a young age, they're getting an education as well as to how does real estate operate? Well, you have somebody that owns the real estate and then you have people that lease the space within it and, and on and on and on. And then how do you finance it? Teach them about interest rates. I've had the exact same conversation with my kids explaining condo versus apartment and uh, ownership structures. And we'll do things like... Uh, Every Saturday, we all go to the same place to do our sports. And so uh, I made a point of driving by a giant construction site every Saturday so they could just see over time the hole getting bigger and bigger and then all of a sudden rising up out of the ground. For them, it was kind of fun to <laughs> highlight that. as uh, I've got a condo watch. going up the end of my street. They just tore down the building and I tell my son... It's going to get built. Literally the next day, he's like, Dad, they didn't build it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Patience. He's four, so it's okay. But it'll take a little bit more time than that. Yeah. And then a question to you guys then, like with your children, do they look at you and say, I want to do what you do? I don't know. <laughs> I definitely have not heard that. My daughter's at an age where she loves dogs. So she wants to be a vet, which I think is a pretty standard answer. But uh, in my family as well, it's not just me in real estate. There's a, a whole bunch of us. So... I think there'll be a certain amount of... Uh, a I think they have to do. Knowing, knowing the family lineage, they have no choice. <laughs> My children are still too young. They want to be a dinosaur when they grow up. Like it's, they're still <laughs> yeah. at that age. So it's <laughs> I want to be a dinosaur when I grow up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll have you back on the podcast when you accomplish that. Yeah. <laughs> Melanie, how did you end up at the CFO position? Again, I think it was just through 
asking for opportunities. It, it's always asking, can I do this? Can I try this? And you end up with a lot of no's, but then you get the odd yes. I think that some of the highlights in my career have been where there's a president of a bank and the investors are going to meet with them. And I say, can I come along? I really want to be a part of that experience. And that's where you learn and you grow and you get a lot of no's, but then one day you get a yes and you get to be a part of that conversation and you just grow from there. So I think it's um, always taking advantage of the opportunities that are being put in front of you and stretching yourself stepping outside of your comfort zone constantly. I mean, if you're not moving forward, then you're moving backwards really in today's economy, right? So maybe just talk about Camgill and its founders and when did it start? What's the strategy? What do you own? Like, let's just, I don't think people are that familiar with the organization. Yeah, so it's two family offices and they started pulling their money together probably mid-90s, I would say. And it started out with value-add opportunities for the most part, and I think has continued along those lines. And just over the years has grown. We're invested in all asset classes. For the most part, we are industrial-based as it sits right now, but we have got office, retail, and we have had a little bit of residential in the past. We recently, over the past five or six years, have started investing as a diversification strategy over in Ireland, which has been an amazing opportunity. So just to learn about investing internationally and investing and developing on different soil. Was that just chasing yield? It was chasing yield and chasing opportunities. So I think that looking at the oil and gas market, it was looked at that point in time that Alberta, like our conversation before, was a one-trick pony. It's oil and gas. So how do you diversify outside of that? And then just through a matter of networking. So our chairman was in Fort McMurray and he ended up meeting a gentleman by the name of Damien Conway, who was from Ireland. And of course, with the financial collapse in Ireland, he was out of work and and needed a job. He'd heard about this place called Fort McMurray where everybody could go and earn a lot of money. So he came to Canada and they ended up meeting and Damien came from the banking background in Ireland and said, you know, there's going to be some real opportunities in Ireland. You need to go there and take a look. So we were able to get in just as things were starting to take off there. And, you know, it takes a couple of years just to get your footing there. It's a pretty close community and it takes a long time to earn trust and to just have people believe that you are going to be able to close on deals and do what you say you're going to do. And so are you still active there? Yeah, we are. We're, we're looking at a, a big portfolio right now in Ireland and we will continue to. Well, it's interesting. CapReads uh, active there and at least one other players. Uh, Timber Creek, I think, went there. Well, Slate, of course, has got a big European presence. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Canadian funds that have ventured that way, and particularly in Ireland. Yeah. And we're actually starting to invest more capital again back here in Alberta. We have a big project, 200 acres out in Balzac that we will be breaking ground on soon. And that's industrial? It is industrial, yeah. What are you building? So it will have three to 400,000 square foot four plates for the most part. And there will be six buildings that are projected to go out there, but it's fluid and flexible depending on what tenants will come to the table. But I mean, when you're building big industrial, you also have to build on specs. So looking at inflation and interest rates right now, it's tricky to be trying to figure out 
what your rents need to be in order to move these projects where, forward. Where are industrial rents in Alberta right now? Because I know they were up in the sort of the 10, 11, 12 back when Toronto was four, five, six, seven. Now we're at 16. Where are they in Alberta? Yeah. So when you're looking at the big box, you know, they're pushing up around $9. Okay. But in the more traditional industrial, then you can be around the $12, $14 range. A good appreciation or is that sort of stable? It's pretty stable. I would say that there's going to be some appreciation in that bigger box industrial that's getting built just because of things that we've been talking about, inflation and interest costs. Yeah, everything else is fairly stabilized. And what kind of rents do you need to make a development like that work? In and around that 8 or $9. Okay, so where the market is now is uh, yeah. going to get you there. Okay. Yeah. And for us, again, because we're a family business, we're looking for higher yield. So we were lucky in that we tied that land up quite a long time ago. So it was a good opportunity There's the big variable, right? Yeah. yeah, it depends what you pay for the land. For that node that you're in, what's the advantage for the industrial use? Is it uh, like a transportation line? Is it a access to the market here? Or what's the, you know, there's always the selling feature with industrial beyond just the, the four walls and a ceiling that you exist in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's just that play on e-commerce and everything that goes along with it. So you can be looking at data centers, distribution, warehousing, all of those things. And data centers are their own. I mean, the rents there obviously would be considerably different, but yeah, you also have to absolutely. spend a lot more on that uh, space to get it ready. Yeah, and probably not the right site for it, but... Okay, yeah. yeah. I can ask a question. I hope it's not indelicate, but we are seeing some developers across the country looking to maybe pause development because of some of the headwinds, construction cost, inflation, and interest rates. Is that part of the conversation at all? Any pausing of you know, activity, whether in your development portfolio or Just anything else going. you're looking at? Any acquisitions? Are you looking at uh, sit and wait and see mode at all right now? We absolutely have conversations around that, but I think anything that we're moving forward on right now, it's guns a blazing and we will still move forward with those projects. It's just a matter of pricing in that extra risk, which we typically do anyways. So, I mean, absolutely with inflation and more supply chains. So making sure that you can get things done on time and ordering steel is a huge issue. So it may have pushed our timelines out but we're still moving forward. Melanie, obviously, you know, you're CFO, so you would be looking at your debt strategy. So what are you going to do going forward, given the timestamp that we are May 18th, and we've seen an uncomfortable rise in uh, interest rates over the last while. So this would definitely be in your, in your purview as a CFO. How are you going to manage the interest rate risk going forward? Yeah, you know, I think that's a good question. And a lot of our interest rate risk strategy, I think, has been done in the past. So we typically put our properties on shorter amortizations. And so we've taken advantage of the low interest rates up until now and locked things in for five to 10 years. So a lot of our loan renewals won't come up for a lot of years into the future. So that allows us to take some more risk on properties that we are developing or buying right now. So when we're looking at it, we're looking at it from an individual building standpoint, but then also from a portfolio standpoint. So it's constantly stress testing and doing sensitivities testing on our entire portfolio to see what can we do in a worst case situation. So I know I was talking with a group of banks probably four weeks ago when I was calling around looking for rate and it just seemed like they were suddenly so much higher. It seemed to happen overnight. And, you know, they were saying that they were stress testing things at plus 5%. So add 5% to your interest rate. So the strategy, I guess, you're doing shorter amortizations, you're looking at lower loan balances on renewals as we manage some of that risk. Are you doing any any early rate locks? And this is the worst part because this is actually recorded and going to be public. What's your view on interest rates for the last half of the year? Yeah, good question. I think it's hard to say. I 
worry that they will go up too fast and it will stall the market out. And with Canada being heavily invested in, or not invested, but with a high level of mortgage debt for individuals in Canada, raising interest rates high fast can have a pretty catastrophic effect. So from our standpoint, where do I think they're going to be? I think that they'll probably go up at least another full percentage point. I'd be more concerned about a credit crunch and there being less available credit going into the future than the interest rates themselves, I would say. Interesting. <laughs> Great answer. Yeah, I know that was. And as I said, I feel kind of bad because you know, this is a prediction you're putting out in the market. We'll find out December, right or wrong. But uh, you know, Aaron and I have put out a lot of predictions in the past and nobody's fact-checked us. I've been right every so, time, yeah. so it's easy. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys are in that space. So what are you seeing? And what are your thoughts on it? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. we ask the questions. Oh, you don't yeah. get to ask questions. Oh, yes. no. <laughs> Go ahead. This is a conversation. Yeah, 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 no. To the point about the bankers you're talking with before and stress testing, they were doing the same thing. We got to make sure that the loan not only works now in our current higher interest rate environment, but we got to allow for further increases. Tougher market to underwrite in for sure. But I could, you know, rhyme off five reasons why I think interest rates are going up and I'd be hard pressed to think of one why they'd be going down. I agree that, uh, you know, upper trajectory for the rest of the year is likely the reality and people should plan around it so you don't get caught uh, on the wrong side of your, your debt. Yeah. Yeah, the big question for me is how much of the future rise in interest rates that the banks of Canada has projected or telegraphed is already priced into current interest rates. And we've seen some steepening of the curve the last couple of weeks, right? Meaning the 10-year, particularly on the long end, the 10-year and the five-year have gapped out more than they have in the last sort of three or four months, which in theory would indicate a belief of longer-term growth strength in the bond market. And then that might then indicate they believe that we've kind of priced in what the rate increases will look like over the next six to eight, 10, 12 months, whatever it is. So it may be that we're at the peak again, or another 500 basis points, or we could be negative rates. You know, the crazy guy that runs North Korea could decide to start testing nuclear bombs in the Pacific and who knows what's going to happen, right? Like that's the, un- the it'd be good for bond yields, but it. bad for humanity. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the market has priced it into a certain extent, but I think probably more that three months out, maybe not necessarily six months out, eight months. Yeah. Out. And then to your point about rising too quickly and then the impact on the household debt, right? And the amount of mortgages that we all hold, that there's, there's so many variables out there. So it's time will tell. That's all we can do. Let's just keep going to bed, keep waking up the next morning and watching the 20 basis points swing from the day before. I think we had the at the peak conversation 50 beeps ago as well. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I did say that. I'm never wrong though, guys. When I first started working in finance, like we had loans at seven and 8%. So it's not something that I haven't seen before in the past. And I think it's also just keeping in mind that a two to 3% Bank of Canada rate is what we consider normal. So these low interest rates couldn't last forever. And, and now it's just trying to figure out how do you operate outside of them again? Well, that's the funny part, really. I mean, yeah, like in a historical context, these interest rates are not even that high. The only real issue, of course, is the cap rates came in behind. If that was not the case, if, if the market had stayed at an eight cap and you were able to finance it one and a half for a period of time, this wouldn't be as impactful. But yeah, you know, especially in industrial space, cap rates have come right in. Uh, That's where my brain was going too, is, you know, today's sort of the top pricing you can get for a conventional mortgage is around 4.7% today. Industrial cap rates were less than that 
a month ago. Even today, I suspect there are probably still purchase and sale agreements out there that are trading on that kind of cap rate. How are you guys internalizing that as an organization? Because, I mean, historically, again, there's usually a pretty healthy spread between your interest rates and your capitalization rates. What is that spread that you guys feel comfortable enough to proceed with a new acquisition? Yeah, I would say that the spread that we're looking for is usually between 300 and 400 basis points. So the assets that you guys are talking about institutions buying, we're not looking at that. That's where we'll move somewhere else. So, you know, again, back to going to Ireland, when that squeeze starts to happen here, then we went there to try and find that spread and also looking at distressed assets. So I think back to that sit and wait, do you allow your capital to collect and then wait for opportunities for projects that can't go ahead or people that get caught in that squeeze? Are you going to have opportunities to pick up assets at a discount? Yeah, exactly. So I I think for us, we will do a little bit of both. Must have been fun trying to figure out how to finance things in Ireland. Yeah. And again, we've got a pretty strong team there that's on the ground. So I was more just on the periphery of it. So for me, it's been more of a learning experience than actually being hands-on. But it's very similar to here. And, you know, the rule of law is very similar there. Um, Title's a little bit different because you have got so many more years sitting in a cardboard box of deeds that, you know, lawyers are going through and whatnot. But the fundamentals are still the same. And the way that they're underwriting their loans is still the same. The way that we're financing things over there is a little bit different. They sweep all of the cash flow. And that's part of the reason why we were able to get into that market. So it's really about the appreciation of the asset and being able to live in a world where you're not taking cash flow off the table for a period of time so that you can build up your reputation and your book over there. So they'll underwrite to a a 1.0 debt service cover? Is that the, the concept behind the loan structures there? No, not really. Not at all. It's actually quite stringent. So you're looking at like 65% loan to value and still your 1.25 to 1.35 debt service coverage. Oh, wow. But in actuality, you might have a 20-year amortization or a 25-year amortization on something, but you'll have it paid off in 10 years because they sweep all of the extra. Yeah, I was going to say, define what you mean by the cash sweep because that can mean different things. But you're saying... Yeah, that's why I thought it was one. No, no, that's the the opposite. They take all revenue. They take all revenue and apply it. And apply it. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're in a position where we've been there for six years and our loan-to-values over there are probably 35%. And that's why we're in a position to be able to lever up and purchase bigger portfolios. Was that cash sweep because you're foreign or is that just the way that they typically do it? I think it's a little bit of both. So it's They didn't want you taking the money out and taking it back to Canada. They wanted to keep it in Ireland. Is that the logic? There's some of that. And some of it has to do with the liquidity of the banks as well. So they needed to become liquid themselves again. The so banks- they're just taking your money and using it to <laughs> support themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's okay. It's, it still gets a means to an end for you, right? Because you're still happy with that. Because you're still, even though you're not actually taking money and putting cash in your pocket, so to speak, you're earning the long-term value of that asset. Yeah, absolutely. And now we're starting to see the benefits of it. It would be unattractive for any investors that kind of needed that cash flow. That would be no. a difficult structure to work with. Not at all. And that's yeah. why we can do it as, as you know, private investors. Yeah, so. no, interesting. You don't have to pay dividends to your shareholders or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Melanie, we're almost at a time. If nothing else, obviously, you have a lot of other responsibilities today. So we want to make sure that we stick to our scheduled time. But I want to end off on, on a couple of things here. We started off talking about part of the attraction for you chairing this event is being a woman in real estate, which is unfortunately, just not well represented in our industry, especially at a senior level. 
So what can you talk about at an Edmonton level, how that has changed over time for the better and maybe where the industry could still uh, use some work? Yeah, um, so we have an organization that's a part of Crew Network and a chapter of it is Edmonton Crew. And What does Crew stand for, just for those that... Commercial Real Estate Women. And through that organization, I've had the opportunity to be supported and also pushed into doing speaking opportunities. That's how I was introduced to speaking opportunities with Informa. And I know that in my conversations with George early on, it was how do we get more women sitting on panels and speaking at these forums. And he said, you know, we ask and women just tend to say no. So when I was first asked to sit on a panel, I actually wasn't an expert in the field, but I said yes. And so they asked me how I was feeling about it. I said, I'm really nervous because I don't, I, you know, I'm not really an expert in this field. And they said, well, why did you say yes? He said, because you were telling me that women always say no. So I've said yes. And now it's your responsibility to draw my expertise that I have out of this panel. And it's been through that, that I've built up the relationship with Informa. And we've come to this opportunity today. And again, part of the reason for doing it is just so that women can see other women doing these things. And so that I can say, you go out and you say yes, and you figure it out. You know, it's scary, but you do it anyways. So then what's on the agenda for the rest of today? I, I think the closing round table will probably be a big part of the balance of your, of your duties, but how do you want to you know, steer this home for the rest of uh, today? Yeah, you know, I'm really curious to speak to the panel. We've got a lot of expertise there. So Colin Lynch has got global expertise. And then we've got Matt Woolsey, who is, and Kevin McKee, who tend to be homebred Edmontonians and keep their investment close here. So I'm very curious to get their perspective on where they are investing their money and what they are doing moving into the future and their perspective on Alberta. I'm feeling quite positive about it. But again, I think it's, we really need to be promoting the Edmonton on Alberta story and telling people that we are more than just oil and gas and that we are moving forward. We're innovative. We are young, educated, and growing. You just told the podcast audience, so it's a good first step. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Melanie, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for taking the time to do this. You've had an incredibly busy day. I joke that you should say no more often, but I, I take that back. Always say yes. I think that's a great message for everybody in the industry. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast and thanks to the Real Estate Forums for hosting us today. Yeah, thank you both for having me. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.